Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How you doing, Justin? Hey, Justin. Can't hear you. Can't hear anything. I I know. I got excited. Uh, <laughs> hey, Matt. How you doing? Good to nice. see you. Good to see you. Are you feeling better? In the flesh. Flesh. I'm I'm feeling a little bit more awake. I'm drinking coffee and. It kind of hit me. Uh, you know, I uh, I swam today, and after I talked to you, I fell asleep. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> That's a sad commentary on our conversation. It sounds like <laughs> no, not at all. You got me. You got the blood flowing, and I got too excited. See, is that the appetizer? Like you guys figured out what? Yeah. I mean, because when we get together, you and Paul is always like, and now Matt will tell us everything about this subject. So like, clearly, you had the discussion before the class. I never know what to say in those moments. It's all set up. How you doing, Dave? I am uh, doing. Hey, Dave. Hey, Alan. You know, we are really special because David said this is the thing he looks like the most forward to during his week. So this is it. All right. Me too. Me too. Well, uh, I did put up a podcast uh, yesterday oh. of uh, Matt, mainly Matt shining. <laughs> you did? What did? I missed it. What did you talk about? I... Oh, he just went on and on. It was amazing. <laughs> Which which week of the eight weeks that we've been doing this? Uh, this was from our last class in the philosophy class. Oh, okay. I was, I was slamming Matt a little bit. Oh, I got it. I got it. <laughs> I know you did. I'm, I'm looking you up on Facebook now to see uh, discerning the secular and satanic. Yeah. So it's all in the title. It's all in the title. You should have put that out like October 30th or something. Yeah. You'd have way more listens. All right. The topic, uh, we can go a lot of ways, but the general topic is agape as it relates to Eros. I don't know if you all, when I was in school, I think it's the book by Nigren on agape. And of course, he makes a big deal about separating these out. And of course, the focus here is, well, maybe we don't need to do that. And Denny's the Areopagite. Uh, I think is a key reference here, but Justin, you say you've done a lot, quite a lot of work on this. So run it down for us. Uh, uh, the, the agape at the book is actually called agape. In Era. And I just remember kind of everyone has absorbed his critique for a time between agape and Eros, because even in like a preaching book about new Testament Greek, there's an illustration in there where, you know, they make a big deal about, John 20 or 21, where Jesus says, feed, tend my lambs or feed my sheep. And they're like, Jesus says, arrows. And he says, agape, you know, throughout this whole conversation. But I, I've just heard that constantly for four types of love. I mean, even in like New Testament exegesis classes or people just kind of absorb that agape and eros idea that, you know, they're completely different. It's interesting, again, to hear that that's not always been the case, but that's more of a middle 20th century study that came out that people just kind of absorbed and took on. So I found that pretty interesting. So she goes down to Pseudo-Dionysus and says, distinction isn't so great. People have led you to believe. So I don't know, how important would that be then? That uh, Eros and Anagape are close to one another as opposed to like completely different realms of love. I don't know if I'm going to answer it, but I'm going to make a suggestion. There was a part of me uh, after reading this chapter is like, is there a difference between the two? The thing that I was going to highlight is, is I grew up, I say grow up. Uh, I didn't become a Christian until my early twenties, but I grew up in that, that Eros, you know, it was that erotic. It was that almost uh, pornographic type love, you know, lust and, I wonder if that was a, um, uh, I'm finding that a lot of the things that I used to believe are a product of my culture and not necessarily a product of, of the Bible. Once I'd see that word eros, I would run because I, you know, oh they, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of that dirty love. That's not, that's not a good Christian love there. I'll I looked honest. in the back um, last night after I finished reading, I noticed 
that there's a glossary of technical terms and names at the end of the book. Eros, she says Greek, love that is marked by desire and longing, especially sexual desire, often contrasted with agape. And then agape, Greek, love that is unselfish, wholesome, and in principle universal, as enjoined in the teaching of Jesus. Uh, once we've said, okay, there's not a difference, or that there is not a separation between the two, what are the theological implications or just the implications? Well, did we say that they're the same? I don't or think we said that they're the same, but they're not separate. They're not over and against one another. The root is in the same place? I may have alluded to the sameness, which that was probably a wrong illusion or alluding. Well, you say, yeah, it's a dirty love. You're like, you know, this is yeah. it's not a good thing. Eros is bad. Plato, I mean, Plato talked about Eros as, uh, you know, the, the yearning of the soul for the divine. I think that that's kind of, so like even like erotic love. And I think that that's, that's what Coakley is talking about with that, the, the messy, how does she say, like the messy entanglement um, between the erotic uh, and the agapeic, because it's like, well, whatever that Eros, that, that yearning of the soul for, you know, that Christ has smitten us, you know, with his Eros, right? Whatever that love is, perhaps there are, you know, higher forms of love, you know, we could say that maybe, maybe uh, that agape love is, is maybe a, uh, a higher form of love, but but nonetheless, whether it's filet, whether it's brotherly love, whether it's uh, the sort of erotic love, not just between, not just like romantically, but even like again, like the soul's sort of yearning for the divine. The isn't that what Coakley is saying is that all desire is has its ground and its telos in God, right? So it's all a participation in the spirit uh, to one degree or another. Yeah, I I would I would jump on that and. and and that's what the hierarchy is about, like ordered, the ordered desires. So, you know, there's an orderliness to it. So you're, there's a, that which also is a direction upward to, you know, if you'd make it a visual metaphor where they're directed upward to God. I wonder if there's some counseling advice and help here, you know, because probably most of us have dealt with people that have come to us and said, hey, I have a problem. Um, with pornography or, or something to that effect. Or, and I wonder if just in some of uh, what was in this chapter is, is that part of, there was a, a sentence here, it says um, that physical desire finds its origins in right divine desire. And she talks about how, uh, you know, Freud is turned on his head instead of God language really being about sex. Sex is really about God. And I wonder <laughs> if there's some counseling advice here that the the desire is real and you know how do we how do we help people uh, begin i don't know point that towards towards god uh so augustine talks about sin as disordered desire okay whereas yeah. your sins are your sin is your your desires but they're misordered certain desires take priority over others where to you know be in a right relationship with the Lord is your desires would be therefore correctly ordered so that they you are directed towards God and things. You know we talk short circuited desires. Uh, maybe like pornography has taken over your life or something. You know I'll, I'll back up a minute here. We have said two things. We said their arrows uh, and agape are not different are different or not different. And of course, what Denny's the Areopagite is saying is they're the same thing. He says that, why can't I talk about my love of God like a love for a woman? And so he is equating, I'm saying this in response to you, Dave. In other words, I'm, I'm thinking here that we don't maybe want to go with Augustine in our counseling. Uh, every uh, teenage kid is going to have those desires are not necessarily disordered. No, that's just what comes with the package. And part of it is recognizing what it is. You know, there is this erotic element. It's not that it's wrong. In other words, oh, I, I understand. But that there is a place for that, and there is an end to that that you don't want to confuse. Oh, yeah. This I was going to say, like, a good of order is how a lot of people talk about it. Or, I mean, in this chapter, it's the hierarchy 
Like, and she uses it in the positive sense of things in their right place, you know, otherwise, so it's not chaos. But yeah, whenever we yearn, you know, so the yearning of the soul for the divine, but what does that mean? I, I think that that yearning is a, is a desire for the beautiful, what we might call the beautiful. What I think Justin is saying is, is that, you know, pornography is a disordered love of beautiful, right? So that it's, in other words, it's trying to satisfy that divine eros, which is an infinite sort of yearning with a finite good. So, you know, the beauty um, of whatever, like an aesthetic beauty, a kind of finite aesthetic beauty is mistaken then for an infinite good. And that, that's like the definition of sin, right? Is to, is, to love, is to adore the created rather than the creator, you know? But either way, it's still an expression. I think that uh, erotic love is still an expression of that soul's yearning, you know, for the divine or for the beautiful, for the good. So help me in the, the book here. I feel like, I don't know if it was in, I read the conclusion as well today. Um, so I get it. I, I understand the, uh, the yearning and the desiring. And I feel like, I don't know if it was in the conclusion that some of that is in that quiet meditative state. Contemplation. Contemplation. That's the word she used. I mean, is that ultimately the end of the book here? I mean, is that the end goal is really to nurture a, contemplative time to connect with the Holy Spirit? Or? Well, I think that just back to what I was saying, that I think that we can, pornography is a great example of, you know, a sort of contemplative sort of uh, relationship with a finite good, right? So we can either orient our desires more and more so towards, you know, towards the finite or towards the sinful, really, or towards God. This was our conversation with Paul earlier that, that well, what is the Holy Spirit? Or what is a Holy Spirit? I think it's a participation in the divine life. Well, we're not going to get there through the contemplation of finite things as an ultimate good. But that's, of course, exactly what happens with idolatry. That is the definition of idolatry, is contemplating the idol, which is a finite thing, as an infinite good. So, David, earlier, earlier you said you found that most of what you think or believe comes from your culture as opposed to the Bible. So Coakley would be pushing us to understand that most of our desires are shaped by the world and the culture around us. That contemplative act is inviting the spirit to, the purgation idea is to, you know, purge us of those desires and allow the Holy Spirit to form those holy, godly desires within us. That may mean stepping away from the world and its influence on you. Um, to find that time to allow the spirit to do its work. But I just, I, I just couldn't pass up because I just was thinking, oh, you said that thing about our beliefs, but I know it's ultimately maybe even more true about our desires. We, we just are so unaware of those things, how advertising or what other people do or mimetic desire, you know, if, if you know anything about you probably sat in with Paul talking about mimesis and mimetic desire. and all That was those. like six classes ago. Yeah, and Rene Girard. So, I mean, p- people are so unaware of how those things work on them. Or, you know, like mob mentality. All, you know, all this, all this crazy stuff that happens because um, our passions, our desires, our feelings are on a level prior to our intellect. Those are how we first touch the world, how we interact with everything is first on the level of feeling and desire, and only later in concepts and words. So that's why it's such a struggle to deal with people and counsel them and, you know, and for them to change their behavior, right? Because those things are so ingrained and, and beat in upon them. Sure, I can change how I think, maybe, but it's way harder to change my desires. Paul, I was telling you about the, I have a, a friend who's an Orthodox priest in Myrtle Beach, a very special man. Uh, like I, I would consider him a very, very special, holy man. But and we were having this conversation. Uh, I was talking with him and he told me something that I, I'll never forget. He said, learn how to see the world with your heart instead of your eyes. He said, this is, this is, you know, orthodoxy. He meant, you know, little O, big O, but he, but that was so important. He said that learn to listen, learn to see the world with your heart instead of your eyes. And so 
I guess was something like they've got to back to what you were saying. It's like, well, what's happening in pornography or idolatry or whatever else It's that we're, we really are just seeing the world with our eyes, right? That it's the, the lust of the eyes, but we're not, we're not like looking at the women, you know, as sort of, we're looking at them as objects to be consumed or exploited or whatever, instead of children, you know, daughters of the living God, you know what I mean? Someone who are, is worthy of love. And, and uh, back to what Justin was saying, it's like, well, to reorient then, and this is what Paul always talks about with our orientation of the, of the, the specular or the visual, right? Is that we, that um, we would sort of feed our eyes, you know, that we would feast our eyes. We would consume, we have these manner, these ways of speaking. Whereas this priest was saying, no, you know, learn to see the world with your heart, meaning the love of, of God. That's not just a, a consumptive sort of uh, lust, lustful sort of uh, looking, but, uh, you know, even in, in an erotic sort of love that goes beyond just a purely visual. Let me, let me raise a question. And, and it's not actually, I think it is digging deeper. It may sound like a trivial question, but I think it, it, can have a significant meaning but why not call god mother or maybe we should maybe maybe i phrased the question wrong should we call god mother well i feel like i don't know if this is her or uh gerhard lofink uh, because the uh he he talks about this as well the whole father imagery you know jesus says call i'm paraphrasing call no man father right and yet throughout scripture he's you know this is my mother these are my sisters and brothers he he's okay with that terminology but there's there's something about father that is very can be has become very patriarchal within society and so i think she maybe touched upon this a little bit in some sense we we call him father um not in the patriarchal sense but in a very true sense that breaks down patriarchy and uh is that anywhere close she references Julia Kristeva, and Julia Kristeva is a Lacanian psychoanalyst who actually goes a step beyond Lacan. Well, first of all, let's go back in chapter eight, which is kind of our key reference here, that where the spirit is taking us in that chapter is to call God Abba, Father. And of course, the idea is it's not simply a generally endearing term it is that but it is specifically the name of god this is christ's name for god this is who you know this is how the son names the father and so i think we could argue there's all sorts of precedent for receiving our father this name through christ but uh, the Julia Kristeva stuff ties in here very interestingly, and, it, and I think it ties into this discussion of arrows. Well, the way that we've gone with this, with the erotic, is to simply talk about eroticism or the sexual. But of course, what we're talking about throughout the discussion, what we should be linking here, is how it is that as human beings, we learn love. How is it that we become subjects, which I think is the same question, that we arise as subjective beings over and against the mother? Mother may very well be, you know, we all start out with mother as kind of the all-embracing, all-inclusive, and actually we don't really distinguish ourselves as an infant from the mother. And human subjectivity arises only when there is that sense of separation from mother. In a usual Lacanian, and I think this is the Pauline picture, I th think Romans 7, 7, he talks about two stages here. He talks about prior to his encounter with the law. You know, what would that be? First of all, is he talking about Adam and Eve in their pre-fallen state? Is he talking about himself as a child before he arrived at an awareness of sin? Is he talking about you know Adam and Eve even before? I don't know that there is a before the prohibition, but I think that whatever it is that there there is in this movement of that Paul is taking us through in Romans seven that there is this unfolding subject and this 
pre-subjective self is one who arises as a subject. You know, a, a small child doesn't differentiate, and this is Julia Kristeva's point, that there is what she calls the imaginary father. And of course, at this stage, they're really, you know, father, mother is just a, a differentiation from the self. The loving father is what she calls it. I was trying to say this earlier to Matt, and Matt was highly unimpressed. <laughs> and because I'm trying, I'm I'm saying something that I can't fully articulate, but I think have the insight, but you don't have the word that we, that we're pointing toward. Well, I don't. I uh, that there's something there. In other words, that we don't really know what a human subject is. We don't know how this arises or what, how this holds together. Certainly, we don't know in psychoanalytic literature. We don't. But I'm a, I presume I have an implicit trust in Scripture, in salvation, that there is something, that there is this, the understanding, a deep understanding of what it means to be human. And therefore, in being able to come to this Abba Father which is not just a name, it's a description of an entering into a relationship that so orders the world. It's ordering human subjectivity, and it's ordering the world rightly, so that this agape love, we could call it, is inclusive of eros, but also inclusive of all that it means to be human, all of the developmental stages, so that in some way, you know, if we think of uh, as Matt has, has described it, as describing it today, that what is, you know, the process that we're all going through? Well, it is a process of maturity that comes to its culmination in this recognition that God is Abba Father. And I presume that in this recognition and realization, rightly understood, that there is mother, father, rightly ordered, that there is eros agape, rightly ordered, and that what it means to be a human subject, uh, it comes to its fullness. I think that relates to your question, Dave, about counseling. My wife is working continually with people with mental health problems, that, that you can uh, have people take a test that of adolescent child, you know, adolescent events that what traumas did you have happen to you? And it's almost a predictor of your health. Certain traumas are going to produce certain health issues. The more trauma, the more health issues. We've all been in some way misoriented into the world. And what we are doing is coming to a correct orientation, a correct understanding. The human problem is we're sick. We need, all need health yeah. adjustments. This is the idea for me in this that we're now talking about everything, that it's an all-inclusive understanding of what it means to be human, uh, and to talk about the erotic and the agape as interlinked, as leading to one to the other. So too, then all of the stages of human subjectivity and development are interlinked, and they all then come to their proper end in, I think, this Romans 8 recognition. Yeah, that was that was really good. I think you said only in our minds do we make uh, the distinctions that these are separate. That we say, oh, this love is the over here, and this part of me, this love is over here. You know, we like to speak a sacred and secular a dualism, like my public and my private life. So it's only conceptually can we really divide up our loves and our behavior that can be problematic trying to balance those, but it's only one person, one person full of desires. And you're just trying to dissect your desires and say, this goes over here, this goes over there, you know, but it, of course, you know, the great commandment is love the Lord your God with everything, right? All that you are not, it's, it's not like heart, soul, mind, strength. Like you got, like you're made up of four things, right? <laughs> and you have to work on each. It's like, Jesus is saying, no, everything, love God with all that you are. That it is definitive. Yeah. Romans 8, you said, that that's why, you know, the sonship, you know, adopted as sons, right? Adopted as sons. And we enter into that son-father, that father-son relationship, that Trinitarian relationship. That's really what's going on there with that metaphor of adoption. 
that we enter into the father son relationship and how amazing and powerful is that image she has the um as thomas aquinas so acutely puts it father is used appropriately of god when the word is used of in inner trinitarian relations whereas when father alone is used of god it is technically inappropriate and therefore metaphorical even in the lord's prayer its appropriateness inner trinitarianly means that the true meaning of father is to be found in the trinity not dredged up from the scummy realm of human patriarchal fatherhood. As Jesus himself insisted so evocatively, call no man father except God alone. And I remember being asked this question a long time ago in seminary. It says, where does the metaphor for God as father come from? My first instinct was to say humans, father-son, father-daughter relationships. And I remember being told, no, that's incorrect. And I was shocked. <laughs> I was like, what? Where else would it come from? Don't insert your human concepts of fatherhood into God. It should be the other way around. What do we learn about the father-son relationship by revelation and inner Trinitarian life? And that's how we should understand God as father. So, And, and usually feminists and people progressives, they want to get rid of the father language because they're importing the messy human side. That That's why there's such a move to be like, well, let's change father to creator, the son to redeemer, and the spirit to something else. And I have a problem with that because Aquinas and she is pointing to is those things are actions God does with creation. God is creator with creation. The son is a redeemer with creation. You know, we're trying to get out what is God in God's self apart from creation. So when we change our language from like father to creator, we're losing something essential about who God is. And we're moved. So there's, there's that move from inner Trinitarian life to, you know, the economic is what God does in history. And then the imminent is God in, its, in himself. I feel like she does critique feminism but she also seems to come back and and maybe i misunderstood it or i just made this up in my mind which but even though she critiques fe feminism uh pretty hard she also comes back and i feel like says it, but it's also a, a window i mean it, it's it's a worthy endeavor right to to have a feminist viewpoint going in there because in some sense right uh, feminism is going to try to do away with some of that macho fatherly image that we've built up within Christianity. You know, we got, it's like the Tuesday night Bible study I'm a part of, you know, we're, we got to be men of courage and warriors and, you know, all that. <laughs> In some sense, the feminist critique is, is good, but it, it has its shortcomings as well. I feel like she seemed to bring that out. There are good insights. Anyway, she's trying to get us away from linear subordinationism. You know, this, this idea of fatherly source sort of thing, linear subordinationism. I think that part of this may come back to as well. So to try to answer Paul's question, I don't want to like frame your question in the wrong way, but I think you asked some, you know, how'd you say it again? Ask the question again, so I don't get it wrong. I asked but, it in two different ways, but should we refer to God as mother? Right. So I was thinking about the the theological language that the that the church has given us, you know. And so I don't mean to sound or seem trite here, but I would with David, I would say no, you know. I would say not least because you know the creed, you know. So so remember the creed says, "I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth." And so, like in other words, like I'm just wondering about the. The theological language that that the church has given us so conceptions and terminology and sort of heuristics and that we can and should use not least because i think that paul the work that you're doing you know in your book where you're talking about the father as the superego or the father as a punishing force so of course the true faith deconstructs all that right and, and restores all that language to say that no, you know, the, the father is full of gentleness. Uh, actually, I was just reading earlier in, in Matthew where Jesus says, no, no one knows who the father is except for the, for the son and, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And then he goes right on after that and says, 
come to me, all you who are weary, for I am gentle. And I'm, you know, so in other words, he's right there. He's revealing, like, well, let me reveal to you, you know, who, what the father is like, right? So all that to say that your book is kind of showing in the first part of it, maybe the first, whatever, 75% or more of like, okay, here's like these wrong conceptions about this patriarchal sort of God that is, is the God of the law or whatever, but it's not the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. Whereas then the whole thing with Romans 8 is, is that, yeah, but that whole language of Abba Father and all that is, is precisely then over and against the idea that's given to us in Romans 7 about our notions of who the Father would be. That is a punishing sort of force, whereas you're saying, yeah, but then Paul follows up Romans 7, of course, with Romans 8, where the Father is, is given to us uh, as sort of like this, uh, a God of um, redeeming love and, and steadfast, you know, sort of faithful mercy and stuff like this, uh, all these different ways that you show that Romans 8 kind of turns Romans 7 on, on its head, right? So that's why I would say that, yeah, that the language of Father is actually, it's, it's, it's not kind of like a should we or shouldn't we, it's actually really critical and crucial that we um, use that language of God because it it's actually playing a really important role in in the context of this class and that is is to sort of lift and 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 well maybe even to in some ways uh, maybe even like abolish one notion of of a sort of a father what we would normally associate with a sort of fallen notion of what a father is with what the actual reality of who the father really is. So what. Yeah. We have a problem with just being very clear about metaphor, calling God mother, saying we're not talking about inter-Trinitarian inner life. We're just talking about metaphor. Right. I mean, would you be okay with saying, calling God as mother, you know, like in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and stuff, like a mother hen. And it, it, I'm okay with using mother language if we're clear on what we're doing with it, if we're clear not to mix it with like inter-Trinitarian life. What do you say to that? Alan says they'll kill him. <laughs> you know, you're talking about the father punishing father imagery. What does that have to do with how people talk about God's wrath? Let, let me state the obvious in answer to your question. And that is that in Romans 7, we have a portrayal of what we could call mistakenly a portrayal of God. And this is actually God understood through the law. Part of the issue here is that what is the human problem? What is the human predicament as portrayed in Scripture? I think we could state it in a singular way and just continue to talk about it forever, and that is that we have a misorientation to who God is through the law, and that is this God of wrath, the, the God of punishing, penal substitution. God is the angry lawgiver seeking to punish, prohibit, and so that God is primarily understood through the law. That's not just a failed theological understanding. I take that to be the human predicament that will, you know, that will manifest in a lot of different ways. Psychoanalytically, this is the human problem, the human predicament, but also then in idolatrous religion, uh, however you want to describe it. I just see penal substitution, God perceived in as a God of wrath, as just taking Christianity and compounding the pagan problem by making Christianity more paganism. And so, oh, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. so yeah. what we have in Christianity is a displacement of an understanding that is just the human problem. It's a problem of our understanding of God, but for many people it may not even involve God. It may just be their orientation to the law or their orientation to the world or their orientation to the symbolic order yeah. of language. That, that's why I see this conversation and the way we nuance it as particularly important that I think we're delivered out of that only through the specificity of who Christ is, an entry into, as you described it, Father is the name of God that we learn from Christ and we experience through the Spirit that we come into that reality. It is an experiential reality, and that's what Romans 8 is describing, and that sets aside this problematic, wrathful, mm -hmm. prohibiting. A lot of people take the words of Scripture very literally and apply them to the life of God, perhaps his imminent life. So when people read about God's wrath, they then apply it and say, God is this. God is this way. But if we are 
careful Trinitarians, we will say, well, no, God is not wrath or, or wrathful, because if you say that, you're saying he's eternally wrathful. Since the beginning of time, God has been wrathful. But what's been revealed to us is actually that God is love and is in this pure, loving, giving, perfectly ordered relationship always between Father, Son, and Spirit. Once I'm equipped with that, I can then look at these metaphors. I'll call them metaphors of justification, you know, the, how the law is used, God's wrath, and these things, and can understand them as how Paul uses the language and concepts of his time to try and communicate to people, as opposed to like Romans 8, where he's trying to get at the inner Trinitarian life and the depths of life in the Spirit. You know, the way that most Protestants are going to talk about God is always metaphorical, that everything we're talking about. And I think that we, by saying Not if they're this, nominalists. Well, in a sense, nominalism is just to say we're never encountering the essence of who God is. That God is, is only comes to us through the, in other words, all we have is language about God, and that language does not enter into the reality of who God is. So <laughs> most that, most people I encounter are the opposite though of that actually. Well, I think that's the description that in nominalism, which is really definitive of Protestantism, surely that's not a fair statement. But in uh, notions of imputed righteousness, notions of getting right with God legally, that's all a kind of illustrative of a nominalist predicament. When we we need to talk about very straightforward way that, no, we have first-order experience of who God is. That is, that's what the New Testament, that's what Paul is describing here. We sound more like Kantians when you say it that way. <laughs> you know, like we did, I mean, before, when you're saying the way most Protestants are, it's like, well, you know, we can't really know who God is, you know, we just have the new, you know, the senses, or we just have the words on the page. You know? Right. I think most people are Kantians, even though they've never heard of Kant. That's what nominalism is. It, it is just flowing out of this understanding that we have the phenomena, but we never have the noumen. This is Calvinism. I think this is Lutheranism. Yeah. Uh, that would be really weird, because that's like the opposite of the idea of revelation and Jesus. Like, Oh, Jesus, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like a pulling back of the curtain so you can see reality. That's the whole point of revelation. Oh, but uh, you understand most Christians are practicing atheists, right? In this, what we're describing. And, and I mean this in an experiential sense. What the significance I, I think this class is doing is that Paul is describing that we enter into the life of God and that we can name this thing. Paul gives us a series of things that we're to always be doing. We're to have a characteristic emotional life. Joy, right? Rejoice. Ah, 1 Thessalonians 3, the Advent text. And be, in, be continually in every circumstance giving thanks. Give thanks in every circumstance. A characteristic emotion, a characteristic attitude, and then the idea be in prayer continually. That is a characteristic openness to who God is. And then he ends the, the three, you know, these staccato commands don't quench the Spirit. How do you let the Spirit's life take hold? And actually to quench is, is picturing the Spirit as a flame. How do you keep from dousing the Spirit? I think it is through these this rejoicing, through this open, you know, continual thanksgiving, this continual gratitude. Uh, that's not a second-order experience. I think that when that is coming about in our lives, shaping the character of who we are, and of course in Romans, he takes it a step further at the end of the Romans 8 and describes it as a life of love. That is our experience of who God is. That is our entry into the life of the Trinity. There's nothing secondary or economic or no, that we actually can have a first-order realization of life. And that life we can name. This is the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to, to, to have the Holy Spirit. With Christ comes, and there's this idea, you know, he is the image of God, right? He shows us how to fully become human. And when we act 
like Jesus, like Paul directs us to, we become more fully human. So you're saying we need to be more human. Yeah. And that, that's the thing that always kind of bothers me when people say, you know, they sin and they mess up and they're like, oh, you're just being human. You're actually being less human when you sin. This is a conversation, Justin, that we can sort of continually have. That, and that is that what we're describing is the characteristic problem, as Paul, I think, presents it in Romans 7. That characteristic problem, and that is that, you know, we talk about modernism, nominalism, and this tendency towards a kind of disincarnateness, or that we're going to climb the ladder of language and kick it out from under us, that, oh, it, the idea of souls going to heaven, or the mind and body over and against one another, a kind of dualism, that we can think of that wrongly simply as the problem of modernity. But my understanding is, no, that's not simply a modern problem, though it may manifest itself different in modernity than it has previously. I presume that this is what Paul is describing throughout Romans or throughout you know, the, his letters in describing the human predicament is that we tend toward disincarnateness. We tend towards disembodiment, that we tend toward a kind of dualism in which my mind and my body are pitted over and against one another, that I can't really inhabit my body, and I can't really, in other words, I'm not holding together. I think you can call that dualism, nominalism, Gnosticism. In other words, it goes under many names, but the root problem is always the same. And what we're describing then in Romans 8 or in salvation, that there is a capacity to be, how, what is our relationship to God? It is to be found in the incarnate Christ that we become fully incarnate in the one who is fully human and maybe the first human. In other words, the first Adam is a kind of failed humanity, and the second Adam then fulfills the potential of the first Adam, that we have a completion of creation. We have an unfolding of what it means to be human in the first Adam, and that is a fully incarnate condition such that even salvation is resurrected bodies. That is how you saved. Well, it's through a resurrected body. It's, it's through yes. full embodiment. And we're talking about hierarchy and ordering. You know, a lot of people throw out like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, basic needs, and they build on top of each other. You meet one need, you can do the next. That's a good illustration, needs and desires. And at the top, if we were so to draw a triangle, or at the top would be God. But he would also be at the base then, wouldn't he too? Physical desire finds its origins in right divine desire. You can't love God, John says, apart from loving your neighbor. And so the two things are necessarily interconnected. I think that maybe Coakley could have used more Paul also from like First Corinthians. And she, she does make a lot of references to Paul's, you know, Romans 8. But I think that even in First Corinthians, like for example, chapter 7, where Paul talks about the different relationships, you know, we could say erotic relationships, those who are single. You can stay single, but dedicate your desires to God. You know, if, if, if you're already married, then if for some reason you, you decide to take some time apart, it must be for prayer. And then Paul keeps that ar argument all the way to like chapter 11, verse, you know, the first verse, you know, imitate me as, as I'm imitating Christ, which is Justin's point about, you know, becoming more like Christ. And I think even Paul makes another Trinitarian argument in the next chapter, in chapter 12, when it starts talking about the, the body, you know, the church is a, a body, the body of Christ. We, we finally become one with him. And, you know, there, he says there's a variety of gifts, but this, the same spirit, a variety of ministries, but the same Lord, a variety of effects, but the same God. You know, you have the oh, three that's good. there. All those things are, you know, specifically, you know, things that are working in all the persons in, in the body to make them one with, with God. It, it's the building up of the church. So all desires 
and everything that we're working as a church, it's pointing to that desire that we have for God to become one with him. In other words, I, I think there is something deeply psych- psychologically deep, sociologically deep. Uh, and that's what I kind of meant that I don't know that we can fully articulate this thing and we're not going to cure it by just, uh, you know, uh, the changing the facade that, that I think that what Paul is describing in arriving at Abba Father, that there is this uh, a shift psychoanalytically in relationships that involves the feminine, the masculine, it involves all that we are. You know, if we were to just take the idea of the father, I think we all understand, oh, just a patriarchal father figure, that's not what we're aiming at. Uh, that we do need to displace that. So we need this mothering father. But it's not the mother either that solves the problem. Idolatrous religion is phallic. You can also say the opposite, that a lot of idolatrous, you know, a lot of the gods are feminine. Part of the problem with the mother figure is psychoanalytically what we've described, that it naturally gives rise to a kind of Gnosticism, pantheism, monism, the idea that all is one and one is all. In either instance, if we reify maleness or we reify femaleness. So obviously, we're not really talking about gender, but the only way we have access to these things is gendered. And so I think a way of, of getting around this What we really need to talk about is engendering. That is, what we're describing God as in male-female is this propagating, producing, giving birth, creative, unfolding. And there is an engendering understanding of God that may well need the genders of male and female, but engendering requires both. If it's simply father, there's no engendering because there's the punishing. If it's simply mother, there's no engendering because it's just all one and one is all. So what we mean by engendering is producing life in the other. That is that one is fully other and that God then engenders life. And the opposite understanding, of course, is the opposite of engendering. And that's death dealing. That is the punishing God. That is the prescriptive God that uh, simply punishes and draws lines. And I think what we, the picture that we're getting in Romans 8 is this God who engenders. We need male-female imagery because we're human, but what it gives rise to is the sense of God is life-giving, an unfolding of life. And of course, the one requirement of engendering is the making of love. You got to make love. Yeah. I mean, I I don't mean that like in a silly sense. I mean that like, I think that that's really what all this is tending towards, right? That the primary work of the spirit is to teach us that God is love and for us to become like God, because we would think that God is not love. We would, we would tend to think of God as punishing, wrathful, evil, you know, torture uh, out for our, our bad, uh, ill-intentioned, whatever. But the work of the Spirit is to teach us that God is none of those things. He's actually the opposite of all those things, and, and that we're to be like Him. And so it's just, uh, it's, it's so basic, you know, but it's the thing that I was telling you, Paul, earlier, that the Spirit is teaching us to to hate sin and, and love righteousness, right? Because sin is what dehumanizes us. It's what dehumanizes others. It's what steals us of our God, you know, sort of like we use the word godliness, but Maybe we could just shorten it and just call it like our godness or whatever, right? Like Jesus says, it's written in your in your law, you know, ye shall be as gods. I think that whenever we when we sin, it not only robs us of our humanity, but it, it it robs us of our divinity too, right? This is the like the work of the spirit is to divinize us, you know. The the work of the spirit is for us to divinize one another through this engendering love that you're describing that we we can we make love to to one another in the spirit so so whether it's a phileo sort of brotherly love making or a you know if the friendship love of friendship or or the erotic love in a marital relationship or 
uh, or any other kind of love. It's an engendering that's not selfish. That's what like Romans 7 boils down to is the I, the selfishness of the I, where there's no engendering. It's impossible. There's an impossibility there of engendering. Whereas in Romans 8, there's the other. There's not the big other, which again makes uh, engendering impossible because it's nothing ultimately at the end of the day. It's a, it's a fantasy. Whereas in Romans 8, there really is somebody else. There's God. There's the, there's the, you know, there's your neighbor. And, and that's the way that we become filled with the spirit, you know? So I, I guess that some of this language almost seems like watered down with like Christianese or whatever, because we're so used to saying these types of Christianese type things. But if I think that if we love, if we learn to love justice and righteousness and peace and all these different things, and we learn to hate injustice and violence and, uh, you know, whatever racism, all these, you know, all these economic or political sort of injustices and and all this stuff. It's like, well, we really can become full of a Holy Spirit. So in the same way that Eros maybe is a participation in agape or, or however you want to think of it, that we can have a Holy Spirit that participates in the Holy Spirit and the one sort of, you know, maybe even precedes the other, right? That we're being called to have a Holy Spirit that is to become like God. And it's we can, or at least I can make these things like a lot more complicated. So I might not be able to change all these um, patriarchal, you know, sort of like um, systems of oppression and all this stuff. But maybe I can learn how to love my sisters, you know, or, or maybe I can learn how not to like objectify my neighbor or, you know, and to make these little movements of, of Christ likeness. And I think that that's the thing. Ultimately, I think that Justin is right to point out that it's not going to be by fiat. It's not going to be by a, an argument. It's not going to be by a, um, a, a, a well-written blog even or whatever. It's going to be by becoming like Jesus Christ. Like that, that's the way that we engender, uh, you know, give birth to maybe even like a new sort of moment, like in the life of the church, right? To like gender, like to usher in like a new time of the church is for is for the people of God to become like Christ, that is to become loving, to teach God as the God of love, that even even his wrath is an act of love. Because like like Justin was pointing out earlier, that you know, wrath is something that's just an is is in reaction to a, like a finite situation, right? Um, but God is eternal, he's infinite. And so in and of himself, he's just loving. And so even his wrath is an expression of his love because his wrath is always a, a remedial corrective healing you know it's never for the destruction of the sinner it's always for the the correction of the sin so um we experience it as wrath but on the side of god it's not yeah it's not wrath it's just right isn't that right it's how subjectively we experience it as wrath but it's not really yeah well, i mean like the scripture in, in hebrews like it says that no discipline is is like fun at the time right but but it yields you know it yields the fruit of righteousness and so all that to say is, is that like we would mistake god even like his even like his his chastisements and discipline we would think that he's all oh, he's the lawgiver he's the punisher he's the whatever but the rome but romans 8 is saying that that even uh like the the, the pains of childbirth you, you know like that metaphor of like that groaning or that whatever like the, all the love that comes from that yeah yeah and and the purgation that comes you know the the what happens he like i think that i don't know if it's there where paul he talks somewhere else about yeah once the baby you know you get you engender the baby or whatever you give birth it's like when you forget about the the labor pains and you see you know you have like this you know you have the 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 child which in this case would be christ you know like that's what we're ultimately engendering hopefully in in ourselves and one another is is christ it's just kind of like really really cool to think of it like that in, in terms of um it's such a simple message, but it's hard to get right. That, that, that message of love for Christians that if we just start there, just say, well, is it loving, you know, is it not loving? It's like, well, once we start walking in love, like we, you know, can change ourselves and engender the uh, change in the world. You just go back to the, what Christian means, little Christ, you know, you're recapturing to be a little Christ. And it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Like I, I always tell people that the thing that uh, it was always the love, you know, that, that maybe, maybe this is what Paul's always talking about with friendship and the, you know, the things that we try to do in, in this class and, and just in our friendships and stuff like that is like the power of that. Cause that's a type of love, you know, friendship is a type of love, but that love can lift. And I know in my own personal, my own personal case, it was like, it was just Christian guys, you know, people who were showing me, 
just the, 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 the love of friendship. And that lifted me up into like higher, hopefully higher and higher, you know, forms of like into the divine life, you know? And so we should never underestimate the power of, of that simple sort of obedience to, to, to Christ to say like, well, yeah, you're like you can't look at porn and like love and love at the same time. You, you, you know, you, you can't lust and love like Jesus said, there's certain, you know, I was thinking about that earlier. There's certain. So the way that I was thinking of is Jesus says in Matthew six, that you cannot love both God and mammon. Right. So there's an example of like where one, where a love of the one doesn't engender love for the other. They actually cancel each other out. Right. It's because you, you know, they're, they're incommensurate. You cannot love both God and, and the things of this world, you might call it, or like the, the finite or, you know, with the other types of love, they actually have their ground and their telos in the infinite, you know? So these other kinds of love, brotherly love, the erotic love, you know, love for neighbor is an expression of love of God and vice versa. So they can actually be lifted up into this kind of what we talked about, like this apectasis or this infinite sort of, it never, like this friendship will never end. This friendship that we have here and actually, I think that it will continue to grow stronger and stronger and closer and closer into infinity. So in infinity and beyond, you know, it'll, it'll never shrink back. It'll actually, and this is like, this is our relationship with God, that it's always going to be like sort of tighter and tighter and tighter and because that's what unity is, right? So it's really kind of exciting. But of course, like the, the finite, the things of this world, those are the things that will be we use those metaphors like Justin was talking about of like being things being burned up and stuff like this. But we, you know, and like the, uh, but we know that like the flames can be quenched and, and, you know, like this world's fires can be put out with water and stuff like that. So it's a metaphor. It's pointing us right to something greater, to something better. Yeah. It, why is it so important to understand desire within Trinitarian orthodoxy? Like, I think that's kind of the journey of the book, right? Is she said, we can only rightly understand desire if we place everything within Trinitarian orthodoxy. I would say that uh, desire understood apart from Trinitarian orthodoxy is, uh, is death dealing. That it's, a, that it's a, because, precisely because it's a desire grounded in the finite and the created order of things and a misrelationship uh, to reality and an impossibility of engendering it's sort of right that, that you can't um that a desire apart from trinitarian relationship is quite literally a desire for the impossible it's a frustrated desire it's a uh, that's exactly the kind of desire that needs to be crucified uh so that we can share in the divine life how can you understand love apart from all we're talking about these weeks. I don't, you know? I don't think you can. I, I think that's where, uh, as we talk about desire, if we don't understand it in uh, Trinitarian terms, I, may, I think maybe this is what Matt was hitting upon, is that I mean, it becomes real destructive, you know, whether it's desire for power, desire for sex, desire for domination, desire for food, desire for wine, drug, what, you know, whatever. But once, when desire fits into that Trinitarian, participation or partnership that it reorients desire to, right. to the places where it belongs. Yeah. Self-giving love is the very heart of the universe. That changes how you see the world, right? That changes how you see the universe, everything. If you look at love, I mean, we, we might take it for granted, but love and in, in antiquity before the coming of Christ, you know, the, the gospel completely revolutionized, as to use a bad pun, you know, our whole concept of, of love, of, of even what it, of, right, of even what love even is. David, maybe an entry into answering, I'm always good at doing the negative. <laughs> and that You're is the deconstructor. Why isn't, you know, you said, why Trinitarian orthodoxy to understand love? And so, one, we understand is not enough monotheism, patriarchy, uh, pantheism, individualism. We could go through all the ones. Two is not enough because two is a binary. Two is a dualism. Two is ling it's the, the way that language works. The tendency with the dualism is to find finality in an imminent frame. That is the two, the knowledge of good and evil in and through the other. And so three, the, the three is this idea of an overflowing or outflowing, you know, maybe I can't articulate it completely, 
But in other words, it goes beyond the one, it goes beyond the two, it goes beyond male and female. And it is this, in, uh, I think it is, when we say three, we've named the engendering quality of it, that it's never a withdrawal, but it's over and always an overflowing uh, aspect to it. Well, I loved your explanation. I think it's a great explanation that, uh, that well, I was just saying with three, there's a middle term. There's the one, there's the other, and there's the spirit that binds the two together, right? Uh, it's a simple way. It's a simple way to say it. The metaxological, the being in between. Yeah. Not everyone's up for that, for deconstructing their idols and reconstructing the God we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I do and, think the, the psychoanalytic stuff helps a little bit. And this, this is what we've talked about, that in a Lacanian psychoanalysis, it really is the symbolic, the law over and against the imaginary. The third term, you know, this is also Kierkegaard. The third term in Lacanian psychoanalysis is death drive, is the negative. In other words, it's death. It is the disruption of the symbolic and the imaginary that this is also the way that Kierkegaard talks about it in sickness. Is it sickness unto death? Most likely. Yeah. Uh, that he talks about this third term. He's talking about I and my, my self relation to myself, my self relation. You know, he just keeps it. It repeats itself. That's how the book starts. Yeah. yeah. The very beginning. Yeah. And then he talks, you know, what holds it all together is the third term. And what he's really talking about is we need to name the third term. Well, what we're describing in the three, first of all, in a Lacanian understanding, the antagonism between the symbolic or the law and the imaginary and the ego, that antagonism constitutes those realms. That is, the third term is the antagonism. It is the death. There is no subject apart from the antagonism, the alienation, and the death. And so what we get by filling those three terms with the Trinity. Our participation in the Trinity is a participation in life, which is necessarily then, God is Trinitarian, and so our participation as a subject, our coming to our own subjectivity, is necessarily Trinitarian, and that then relates us in the same way to the world. That's the way in which the third term opens life to us and opens other people to us it opens the world to us and of course it is god that we're participating in yeah the other way to describe desire apart from a trinitarian relationship is death boom this is good stuff that was your question that was a great question justin i like the question right i would say like how can we know what love is apart from <laughs> they could tell you a million things if you don't hurt me you what know. are you saying, Matt? I'm it's just a joking. song. It's a it's a European dance oh. song. What is love? Oh. Baby, yeah, don't song. hurt me. And then don't I just heard me. There was like the classic rock song, you know, foreigner. I want to know what love is. You know, we could just said it's it's. I want to know what love is. It's the, it's the holy. It's the Trinity. Life in the Trinity. Go around the city a campus just ask people what you know what do you think love is no justin i want you to go around i want you to go around campuses and i want you to literally go up to them and do in like in rick astley's voice say what is love and i want you to start doing the rick roll and then see what they do oh he says <laughs> i'll never let you down i'll never give you up yeah turn around yeah and hurt you that's right. That's right. I want to get that t-shirt. It said, I'm never going to, it was like, love will never give you up, let you down, you know, say goodbye or hurt you. And it just had a, like a picture of like Rick. Rick. Yeah. It had a picture of Rick. Yeah. The CIA yeah. actually, or like the NSA used to use Rick roll as like a way that to like, once they would, hack torture in, no, like once they would like hack into like, uh, you know, like the enemies, you know, websites and stuff, and they would go back into their, like they thought it was like an encrypted thing. They would go back to their server, and when they would log into their website, this is a true story. They would see the Rick Roll, like the GIF of like the Rick Roll. That was how like the CIA and like so Rick Rolling is actually like a term you can like Wikipedia. Oh, that, that's a senseless uh, piece of trivial. Technically, yeah. the Rick Roll means to fake someone into watching something, and then the music video for Rick Astley's song <laughs> plays. That's so right. what will happen is it'll be like a serene yeah. water coming in, waves on the beach, and then it'll boom, 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 boom
We're no strangers to love. You know, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Paul, you got to rescue us, man. You got to rescue us, Paul. <laughs> it's it sounds wonderful. I... <laughs> no, it's terrible. It is terrible. Don't... Hey, this has been. I think we've. Uh, I think we managed to sum it up, answer all the questions. No, no. Should we confess the? Should we say the filioque way or not? Yes or no? No. <laughs> That's next week. Oh, there's a simple answer to that. No. Paul's trying to end. We're we're like we're we're flying high here, and Paul's like, I'm shutting her down. <laughs> We're at, I gotta, this is I gotta true go love, bed. Paul. How dare you try and take us down when we're at the peak of love? We're at the pinnacle of love. We're like, we're, we're everybody come next week prepared to answer the filioque question. Now. <laughs> that they've been trying to work out for at least a thousand years now. It's too much. It's too much competition of all. Hey, remember the time the Eastern Orthodox Church agreed to come under the West and have a pope, but then the people rejected it. Wow. There's your paper, Justin. There you give, go. Give us a rundown of the Filioque clause. Remember that they'd rather die in, in, in Constantinople than become Roman Catholics. Yeah, no, there's your idea for the for the paper is to unite the church at once again. Uh that's in this class. Just write a paper that we we, we will solve all the Protestant denominations yes. right here. With this one eight page paper. Right now. There you but, go. <laughs> that's your well, paper, I hope Matt. No. I, I hope none of us are now like Luther and believe that God hates us. That's right. That's that's right. No, God loves us. I spent a good good class. Appreciate you guys. What's our next class, Paul? Do we start the whole curriculum over or what? Uh, Alan is. This is his final class, and mm -hmm. so he's been through the whole catalog. But I think it would be really cool is if we all read Romans eight together. Read okay. Paul's book. Read his chapter on Romans eight. It's actually I, I told him earlier today. I was like, in my opinion, I like Sarah Coakley's book. It's all good and great, but 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 his stuff on Romans eight in his book, I think it would have been even better. In my well, Paul, we're waiting for the second edition to incorporate your new insights. I said that too. I said that very thing. I told him. I said when when TNT Clark reaches out to you and they say, Paul, we're ready for your second edition. Uh, you know that he could be. He could be <laughs> Because of all the residual, all the all the profits were, that we foresee, there's hundreds of millions to be oh, made. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, that's the money's rolling in, you know. <laughs> that's why I teach these classes, rather than write a book for the I money. Just, you guys got the information. If I get hit by a truck, it <laughs> depends on you. What if you hit the lottery? What if something good happens? Why are you gonna get hit by a truck? <laughs> Got to play it, right? Matt, you organize the Fester Shrift or whatever. Yeah, Fester Shrift, not Fester Shrift. Uncle Fester Shrift. My tongue is messed up. Yeah, I can't do it tonight. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, it's Matt, already, you organize it's that. Internet. It's on the internet now. You know, he's already cataloged all of his stuff on the on the Forging Plowshares uh, website. It's all there. Really? This was the last class? Like, you put together a design, course design document a long time ago, and... We yeah, don't think he just throws this together uh, off a whim, right? You guys well, inspire me. But, Paul, you've done all the hard work. I would just start it all over because you've done all the hard work. Everything's up in cams. Everything's all, you know, now you can just go back and, and, and you know, redo it all. Yeah. Charge double. Charge triple. That may be it. That may be it. We'll see you guys next week. Okay. Good class. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org.